What's good, everybody? I'm a trainer called Tony from the world-famous Off The Strength Podcast, and I'm happy to be here partnering with Lululemon to help them kick off their virtual seaweeds this year. In honor of the event, we're launching a special five-part series entitled Running Outside the Lines. We're looking to highlight the lives of runners and wellness professionals looking to find out what happens when fitness stops and life begins. Through stories of inspiration, perseverance, and triumph, We unpack the role this historic year has played in the lives of movement artists, discussing how their training helped keep them motivated when life became uncertain on the backdrop of a pandemic and civil unrest brought on by a mass awakening to systemic injustice. Though the stories and perspectives may differ, the sentiment to keep running towards a solution remains the same. No matter how high the hurdle or steep the climb, listen in to hear how when the course changed, these athletes weren't afraid to run outside the lines. You should have been downtown. The people are rising. We thought it was a lockdown. They opened the fire. Them bullets were flying. What's good, everybody? What's good? Welcome back to yet another episode of Off the Strength, where we're giving you the inside look into all things wellness culture. I'm a trainer called Tony, and of course, with me, I got some gentlemen of extraordinary league guys. Let's go around the table and introduce ourselves, please. Your trainer, Corey, a.k.a. your favorite trainer's favorite trainer. K.R. Jones is in the building. That's right. Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, children of all type, listeners from near and far, you are in store for a treat today. Fellas, we jumping back into that Run Outside the Line series, and you know we had to pull up with some new friends. All new friends this week, fellas. How y'all feeling on that side? I like new friends most Hell of the time. Hell yeah. Fellas, let's give a round of applause for Carter Berry coming on the mics. Carter, what's good, homie? How you feeling? I'm feeling good. How are y'all feeling? We are great. As you can see, we've turned up in the studio. We're starting to make fun of the mm-hmm. homies' dance moves and all the rest of that, you know? Now you do well. You do well. Come on, man. I should look a little Aunt Jackie-ish. <laughs> it did. It, it was real auntie at the barbecue, that's all I'm saying. You know, I, that's all right, man. For for the comedic effect, I am willing to sacrifice I appreciate, <laughs> to come on this mic. I appreciate that Prosecco wiggle you had. Hell yeah, man. You know? <laughs> God, how you holding up today, man? I'm doing good. Got my workout coming up in about an hour. Saw a client this morning, six feet away. Masked up, of course. There we go. Safety first. I love as, that. As we do. Yeah. And then I'm just going to cruise the rest of this cloudy New York City day. There we go, brother. Well, before we sent you off on this cloudy day, we're going to add a little bit of bright sunshine in this with this interview over on this side. No, man. Mm-hmm. So I want you to be able to express yourself and you're going to give us the story about what it means to run for you, what it means to run outside the lines. But before we even mm-hmm. jump into that, my brother, I need you to introduce yourself to our crowd. Can you please let them know who you are, where you're residing, and what it is that you've been up to? All right. What's up, everybody? My name is Carter Berry. I'm a personal trainer and group fitness instructor and a consultant to other fitness professionals. And I'm born and raised in New York City. And I've been in this industry for nine years now. I started when I was just 20 years old. And, yeah, I train clients of all different shapes and sizes and friends of mine and and colleagues of mine from over the years reach out to me to, to help them with their program design, to help them also become better fitness professionals. And, you know, I love what I do. There we go, my man. We are in the room of gentlemen of extraordinary league and of the same esteem. I saw a couple of the places that you work for, brother. I know I've been in a couple of those spots, too. Mm-hmm. So I already know what time it was when you bring out the professionalism on this side. <laughs> my man <laughs> Kyle over here did a couple tours at that spot, too. 
we did yeah. all of that. We yeah. did all of that stuff, man. You know, yeah. and and we want to hear yeah. and understand how you form that story. And the way that we like to kick that off, Carter, is we like to do it a little something like this. Now, Carter, I want you to think back. Think mm-hmm. way back, my friend. I want you to think back to that first time, that very first time when a thought occurred to you. When you sat mm-hmm. back and you said, I think I might love this thing. I think I might mm-hmm. make this my career. I want to know, Carter, where were you when you first fell in love with this thing we call wellness? Let me hear that story for a second. Huh? Oh, okay. I would say I was in... I actually remember this moment when I had this conversation with my mother. I was in our living room in Jersey City Heights, where I used to live, and I was 19. I had, no, I had just turned 20, and I was still living uh, a pretty unhealthy lifestyle. I had just quit smoking cigarettes after smoking for five years, about a half a pack of Newport Hunters a day, and I had quit that habit. I was still sort of bumbling around and not really knowing what I was going to do next. I had dropped out of college for multiple reasons. I I wasn't feeling focused and I still felt like a kid and I was just running around the neighborhood, hanging out with my friends and not being productive with my time. And I was talking about career options and my mother recommended becoming a personal trainer because I had just gotten really involved in uh, mixed martial arts and I had become more and more curious about movement she noticed that i was working out a lot more and she was also a personal trainer back in the 80s and 90s you know that's that's where she met my dad was at the gym actually and she just threw that idea out there and i just immediately you know capitalized and and ran with it i enrolled in focus personal training institute and as you know as i began digging into that curriculum and learning about anatomy and physiology and some basic biochemistry you know my sort of even though i wasn't really a great student at college i felt that genuine curiosity again and and passion and willingness to learn that i thought that i had lost and it was in that moment that i knew that this new career path that i had just dipped my toe into was was going to be it and I'm really glad that this is it. My man, he had a transformation situation happen on that side, fellas. You hear it was a family affair? Of course. Came in with the one child grows up to be, in this case, a personal trainer right now. (laughs) That's how it starts. That's how it came about, my man. I appreciate what you were putting down on that side, brother. I see how the whole situation came together. And honestly, it it does kind of highlight some of the same transformative properties that we see in people who are leaders like yourself to be able to give people confidence, to be able to give people, you know, the ability to see that same story that you had of transition going and now sharing that and then living that for, for your clients in some way, shape or form. I can understand how you build a whole career path off, off of that side. Yeah, man. One of the things that is a challenge for us in this particular moment is to take that same talent and translate that backwards to everybody who might not have been able to afford us at that line that people mm-hmm. really had when, when we were at those uh, those facilities that, you know, price tag is kind of high, right? The, the price mm-hmm. of admission to get inside there to talk to somebody that's going through that much education it starts at around $100. Think of yeah. how many people weren't having that conversation after that, right? Yeah, So exactly. So inside of that, you know, I, I do want to understand how we make it a little bit more accessible. I do want to understand how we expand on that knowledge and then make that knowledge both retroactive and forward mm-hmm. thinking, right? And I hear that in your voice. I hear that in your story and, and when you come when that mm-hmm. comes about. So 
before we jump into how that's manifesting today, can you talk to me a little bit about what running means to you? And where did running come along in that story? Well, for me, running means overcoming something really difficult because you know it'll be worth it in the long run. Because running is something that I've always struggled with. I've always felt reluctance to do. And every time I get up and I go for a run, I still never truly enjoy it. But I force myself to do it several times a week because I compete in an aerobic sport called competitive kettlebell lifting. And that stimulus forces me to become extrinsically motivated to run. Because if I don't run, then I won't win. And if I don't win, then uh, you know I've been wasting time, sort of. Not necessarily, you learn when you lose. But running for me represents that sacrifice of time, of comfort, that we can apply in many areas of our life. And running just happens to be that one thing that I'm always so reluctant to do, and I still force myself to do it. And I feel proud of myself every time I do. Righteous, man. So it's a necessary sacrifice. Fellas, what y'all feeling on that? How's that coming about for y'all? I think that running for me is definitely a sacrifice. I, I hate it, so I understand. Um, <laughs> yeah. I, I was a sprinter many moons ago. The idea of running more than one lap is crazy to me. <laughs> so the fact that you push yourself through uh, to do something like running, for, di especially with real distances for the purpose of performing in another sport is a beautiful thing. The one thing I do want to get into and ask you about is when you're in that moment of sacrifice, right? Mm -hmm. You're in it. Not when you start because you know why you start. And when you're almost done, you have mm -hmm. that ending coming. It's that middle part. Mm -hmm. It's that real yeah. heavy hump where you're like, I got this much distance left. And you know mm -hmm. it's a sacrifice, but you need more than that. Where do you go? What do you dig for? This happens to me every time I run. I imagine that I'm on the platform lifting the kettlebells. And, and I'm like 60% of the way through my set. So in my sport, I compete for 10 minutes straight. And you have to continuously lift. You can't put them down. And whoever gets the most reps wins. And so during that 10 minute period, the sixth minute and the seventh minute are always the hardest mentally because that's when you really start feeling the fatigue. And I just put myself there, literally. I'll be running on the track along the East River and my calves will start hurting and I'll start feeling that reluctance kind of creep up and those voices in my head start getting louder and louder. And I just, I put myself on the platform. I literally visualize watching the clock tick up six minutes and four seconds, six minutes and five seconds. I imagine I'm lifting. I imagine that I'm just one repetition ahead of the person next to me. And if I stop, it's a wrap and I can't stop. And so, you know, that always helps me push through. And then, you know, like you said, once you get to that final lap, which for me would be that 10th minute of that competitive set, like, you just go and you get that beautiful transcending catharsis of pushing yourself as hard as you can in that last moment. And, you know, I love that feeling. And I know that if I can make it through that middle part of it and just get there, then I'm home free. Until we started, you know, talking to you and having this conversation, I had not heard about the sport, to be honest with you. Oh, we got to bless you with some gear of yeah. sport knowledge, my I would, man. I would love to hear how you got started with it. So my man is hitting you with the long cycle and the short cycle knowledge. Carter, mm -hmm. I'm, I'm, not, I'm not a stranger to the bells, Carter. I'm trying to tell you uh -huh. right now, yeah, homie, you understand? Like 
we going to come ready, across yeah. with this. We're we, we going to get into some science right now. Are you ready to jump yeah. into science, Kyle? I'm, I'm always I'm ready. So <laughs> Carter, let's get the science on what the gear of sports is. Hit my homie to the science. Okay. Well, I'll first I'll answer your first question with how I got started with it. I began as a 20-year-old kid working at a very high-end health club, which many of us may be familiar with, known as... And, you know, my manager gave me a chance at 20 years old and just threw me in there. And I felt like I did not have sort of a niche to set myself apart from the other trainers. I was, you know, I'm still not like a huge dude or whatever, but I was like skinny and inexperienced. And I knew I would never be stronger than the, the strongest power lifters at the gym. I knew I would never be better at calisthenics than those calisthenics guys at the gym. And I needed, I needed my own lane. And so I gravitated towards the kettlebells because similar to my mixed martial arts training, it seemed like a long-term project where you gain these little skills one at a time. And it felt like a martial art because when you're lifting kettlebells, it's never perfect. And you just get a little bit better every time. Uh, which is the same with many strength sports. You know, and so I started with hard style kettlebell lifting. I got involved with people who were with me at ArcAC, who were in strong first. I got those certifications and whatnot. And then in 20, 2014, I began learning about kettlebell sport, which I also didn't know existed. It's a very niche sport. It's a very fringe sport. Not a lot of people have heard of it. And so because of that, it was so unique to me. And Basically, the format of it is a classic kettlebell sport is like this. It's a 10-minute set where you're either doing a clean and jerk with the kettlebells, which is known as a long cycle because you're doing two movements. So the full cycle has a, a clean and a jerk with it. So that's why it's a long cycle. And then there's also jerk, which is just the jerk movement coming from your chest to overhead with the kettlebells. And you have to fixate properly and make them stop moving in order for your rep to be counted by your judge. And then the third movement is the snatch, which is like a, a like a kettlebell swing with one hand, but it ends overhead, fixated and stable and not moving, and then your judge can count your repetition. And you have to constantly stay calm, you have to breathe and choose a pace that you're able to maintain, but still push for that sprint in the end. A lot of strategy behind that. Yeah, for sure. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah. Carter, I just wanted to pull it back a little bit to uh, speaking about that box space that you were throwing in when you were 20. I know Tony mentioned this before, but we both did a little stint in that same place. And uh, mm -hmm. speaking of running outside the lines, could you just briefly speak on what it was like to, to find your niche in that space of, you know, existing with 20 to 30 other trainers and just trying to mm -hmm. stand out like how were you able to find that niche and then let it propel you to where you are today? Well, you know, like I said, I attached myself to one tool in the gym and I specialized. There's an idea within the idea of minimalism called essentialism, where you focus a large amount of your time just in one area and you become as close to an expert as you can in that one area rather than trying to you know, spread yourself too thinly across multiple different genres of fitness in this case for us. And so that was the first thing I did. I specialized, which set me apart from a few other trainers because I was able to do these you know, crazy tricks and, and bent presses and all these 
moves that a few other trainers didn't know how to do. And what that did was it provided me a platform where I could educate other trainers on these movements and these concepts. And I felt like that benefited me a lot because that sort of influence with the rest of the trainer team, even though it's sort of a competitive environment where everyone is trying to get clients sort of competing with each other, even though it's that sort of environment, having that platform and being an educator for the other trainers allowed me to gain influence with uh, and rapport with my managers and build my business effectively without sacrificing the relationships with the other trainers. And I was able to also watch the other trainers grow and see them apply what I had taught them with their clients and sort of spread the love and have them also build their businesses and everybody, you know, it seemed like a win-win for everybody in that situation. See, what I like about this story, Carter, is even though you were working for the box gym, you're refusing to allow yourself to be put inside the box. So individuality mm -hmm. was something that was important to you to some extent. Mm -hmm. Identity was something that was important to you to a certain extent. Just the parallels in that story. You sound like a, a person that can pull apart a lot of different pretty big concepts and apply them to other mm -hmm. parts of life. So when you said, if I stop, it's a wrap, I can't stop, that, that mm -hmm. resiliency that echoes in that statement is something that, that speaks across all the disciplines you're, you're talking about, from the martial arts mm -hmm. to the, you know, the gear of sport, everything inside there. Mm -hmm. I, I want to know, when you leave the professional side alone and you turn and you look at the rest of the world, the relationship mm -hmm. between you and the world, how does that information shape what you tell yourself about what we're witnessing today in these times? In terms of the resilience and the patience? Yeah, I would imagine that there's a identity conversation that's happening right now for you. Oh, yeah. There's uh -huh. a conversation about what resiliency is really going to mean, especially in this year. I feel like, well, let's just pull it back a little bit. Mm -hmm. On the industry side, a lot of the stuff that you knew was true is not true today. Mm-hmm. On the civic side, a lot of the stuff that you knew was safe is not safe today. Yeah. Right? On the society side and the health of what it is to be a member of this, this bigger concept called humanity, it's not necessarily <laughs> the same. So I want to get into some of those layers of that conversation if, you, if you'd allow me. But keeping in yeah. mind that you had that lens of all the rest of this discipline and, and the things that you have very well defined inside your professional hat, how does that present mm -hmm. itself in your social spaces? I'll try to pick that apart the rules are definitely different nowadays. Like everything has changed in regarding the context of 2020. So I would say from a professional standpoint first, you know, everyone in the fitness and health and wellness industry has been affected by this pandemic. And so whether that means your gym is closed, which is usually what it means for most of us, or that clients, you know, private clients, no longer feel comfortable personal training for a while. All of us have taken a financial hit and we feel kind of frozen. You know, we don't know what and, and uncertain, right? We don't know what's coming next. We don't know if there's going to be an extension of unemployment benefits for fitness professionals. We don't know if gyms are going to reopen in New York anytime soon. And so that demands from us that sort of patience and discipline that we get from practicing these kinds of endurance type sports you know whether you run long distance or you're an mma fighter or in my case a kettlebell sport athlete you know we all hit these walls 
through our during our training and during our competitions. And what separates the winners from the losers are the people who are able to break through those walls at those right moments and be able to continue on even though it's really tough. And right now, you know, some personal trainers are changing their careers. Some fitness professionals are leaving this industry because it's hard to take this heat. And, uh, you know, I don't blame them. And some of us are forcing ourselves to adapt. And, you know, when we all come out of this pandemic, you know, there's going to be some gyms that were able to survive and some gyms that had to close. But all of us are going to walk away from it with a different tool, like a different tool set of, of strategies. You know, some of us have had to move on to much more online training. With these Zoom sessions, you know, I can't touch my clients. I can't physically demonstrate something as effectively as I might be able to. So what we've all had to do is we've all had to learn how to really effectively use audio cues without adequate visual stimulus and without tactile stimulus with our clients. And so that's a skill that we've all acquired now. So when I go, me personally, when I go and I see my clients now in person again in the park with a mask on six feet away, the way that I can articulate these movements is so much better than it was before. Like I've learned from this experience and I've improved as a professional because that, that, that pressure forces us to, it bottlenecks us into becoming this certain type of professional. So I think having that patience, having that discipline, understanding, you know, that sort of tough athlete mindset when it comes to our careers is helping fitness professionals survive during this time period. To sort of get into the second part of the question in terms of the social upheaval that's surrounding us right now, we we're encountering all these traumatic images left and right and these events keep happening, these symptoms of white supremacy and systemic racism that we've had for a hundred years continue to show themselves. And these incidents continue to take place. And there's all this hyperbole and really, you know, difficult language coming from the people who don't want to believe that it's real or that don't or that want to downplay the severity of it. And that demands a lot of patience from those of us who are passionate about social justice, who do understand the kinds of changes that need to be made. And whether that means patience in, in terms of not reacting violently to someone who's, who's performing a violent act against us, or patience when it comes to, you know, coming to the table and forcing ourselves to have difficult conversations and maybe teach someone something. You know, there's a lot of uh, well-meaning people who want, who would like to consider themselves allies who maybe miss the mark or who maybe don't know how to use the proper language when encountering these issues. And it's up to us to be resilient and explain to them how they can help in the right way and how they can avoid sending the wrong message. Yeah. And that's going to demand, you know, it, it demands a lot of patience from us in that regard. It's an important dialogue to have. And it does reflect 
a lot of those vestiges of what you're pulling from the physical learnings, I should say. So there is a specific adaptation to the imposed demand happening right now, right? Yeah, that principle is Let me cook it up a little bit, baby. Let me show you what we're doing over the here. Science. You know, the deep science. We're going to break this out. Oh, yeah. <laughs> but in a real situation, the demand of what is happening clear and present is really making this survival of the fittest come about. Right. There's yeah. survival of the fitness happening. This is Darwinian practices coming about inside mm-hmm. of our current context on yeah. the business side. So economic fitness is mm-hmm. in a commercial situation. The social mm-hmm. fitness is in a tricky situation as well. You're going through all these constructs and they're very complicated, very layered. Mm-hmm. There's never going to be one brushstroke that clears all of that out the way. So I like to celebrate situations when I can hear somebody who's processing all of these things at the same time and finding a way mm-hmm. to navigate that. Because the hope yeah. is that Carter, that you can take that same practice that you give out this information for. I can hear that your instruction is very poignant and it gets people Mm -hmm. to have that help. My challenge to everybody that's in this wellness doctrine is to take that talent that I know that everybody has and let's use it to fix some of these problems that we keep seeing around here. Let's Mm -hmm. take that. How do we form instruction? How do we get people to be empowered? How do we get people to take some means of their own circumstance back into their hand? It might be difficult, but it does require you to show up for this in some way, shape, or form. That's one of the base principles of all sport. It's like, okay, this is the only place where we can really even things out because my work is going to translate to this result, right? That's really one of the only places that this meritocracy idea can exist. It's like, okay, you showed up to the gym. My genetics is going to be my genetics. Your genetics is going to be your genetics. But whoever puts in the work, we're going to see the result for us. That's relative. Exactly. How do we yeah. translate that to the systems that we see around that and the systems that orbit that and the, and the, the infrastructure that's needed to support that to go forward is the question that, you know, is going to be our question for, for us to answer. And I really do think yeah. this coalition of the willing fellas is going to be the ones that bring it together. I think we might have another mm-hmm. brother that we putting inside this coalition in a little bit. You know what I'm talking mm-hmm. about? Facts. <laughs> Adding to the team. Carter, I want to unpack something a little further, too. You talked a little earlier before we started recording about privilege. Mm-hmm. Tell me about how privilege works within what you're trying to accomplish and what you feel like you're trying to do and what your role is in this marathon of ours. I think privilege is something important that we need to recognize. And those that have a certain type of privilege, after recognizing it, they have to understand in what ways although someone benefits from a certain type of privilege, you know, in what ways can they use that for good per se, rather than just sort of sit on their haunches and say, Oh, well, it's too bad that all these things are happening because that's, that's what we hear a lot. And I think the way that I relate to it, I'm a biracial person who is, obviously white passing and I, and I benefit from white privilege and I'm fully conscious of it, obviously. And for me personally, one area where I feel like I can use it, use my privilege uh, well, and that I think others can use their privilege well is when you encounter somebody who maybe they're skeptical of the severity of these issues, right? Or they downplay the severity of these issues. They might not feel comfortable approaching black people about these issues, or they might not feel comfortable being vulnerable as someone who wants to be a well-meaning white ally, but doesn't know how to do it. They might not feel comfortable being vulnerable approaching a black person 
with with these issues because they don't want to be misinterpreted they don't want to offend anybody and stuff like that and and that holds them back from helping produce real change and one area where where i've noticed that it's a little bit different for me is that they they do come to me like i've had you know friends of mine during during this time period come to me and admit that they have these racial biases that they're trying to confront and me being white passing they might feel less less inclined to be silent about those things with me and that that way i can help them unpack it and i can point them in the right direction and you know i see on my social media the people that i've been able to have these conversations with and change their mindsets and bridge the gap a little bit like they are showing this type of, of beautiful fervor for social justice that i had never seen from them before and i'm so thankful that they felt comfortable coming to me and being vulnerable with me on these issues so that they can go and have that argument with their racist uncle on when thanksgiving comes around for example or so that they're equipped to make the change because it's important that the people who are in a position of privilege don't just sit back and, and watch things happening because they have capital, they have money, they own buildings, and they can make a good contribution to this kind of progress that we're looking to make. Carter, just briefly speaking on, you mentioned allies and being in a place of privilege where you can help people. If you could give people more of what allies could do more of and what they could do less of, what would you tell the people? I would say what allies could do more of is putting their money where their mouth is first and donating to companies like the NAACP Legal Defense Fund. When they express their outrage for these issues, you know, a lot of them do it because maybe they feel like they have to on social media so that their friends don't think that they're ignoring it or something. And so they'll, they'll say something. But one thing that's important is the financial aspect of it. I think that they need to, especially if they're coming from a place of financial privilege, they need to donate to these agencies that are directly, positively making change in these communities. That's one aspect of it. And using their voice and using their bodies in a way to draw attention to these issues in a unique way. For example, like the media, the, the mainstream media will always point more attention towards like unique white protesters, I've noticed. So that's a form of privilege in and of itself, that they will get more media attention for, for getting loud. Like when all those moms in Portland uh, marched a couple weeks ago, that was on all the news. When there have been protests in Portland every single day, but when it's a big group of white moms, they get all these cameras on them. Or when it's a white Navy veteran getting, uh, you know, I'm sure we all saw that viral video where the police officer starts beating him with a baton when he's just standing there. That gets a lot of media attention. And that form of privilege, you know, if they keep doing that, the cameras are going to stay on them. And so using their voices and using their bodies and putting themselves out there or even these are anecdotes. And so obviously 
you take it with a grain of salt, but footage of these protests where you'll have a group of white people like use their bodies and go in front of the black protesters because they know that the police will be less violent with them, for example. That, I think, is a perfect visual representation of how people can use their uh, privilege for good, even if they don't have the financial means. And, uh, you know, even though that's a very specific example, things like that. If a person sees an, an incident that might be about to transpire, or they see something unfair happening, and some person with privilege speaks up and says, hey, officer, stop doing that, maybe there's a greater chance that the officer will take that person's point of view more seriously because of that level of privilege. And so when someone can recognize that and say, hey, this, this is a point where white privilege can be used for a, a point of progress, I, I think if people can identify that and capitalize and do it when the time calls for it, it can uh, continue to make progress. It's a profound sentiment to come across when you see the injustice actually play out in real time. Where mm -hmm. the sentiment that I want these rules to be applied equally is a radical sentiment, then we have to question yeah. what the Republic is actually built off of. So we're not saying mm -hmm. that we want it to matter. These lives matter more. We're not saying that these lives are more important. It's like, no, 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 no. These lives matter. It's like look at this. Mm -hmm. Look at the system of treatment. Look at the system of mm -hmm. uh, oppression that surrounds that. If mm -hmm. we can apply something that could be fairness inside here, it wouldn't be as visceral of a reaction. But because the legacy of all mm -hmm. of this injustice has cascading impacts, it mm -hmm. becomes something that amplifies till we get to this pressure cooker of a situation and explode. Exactly, and because as North Americans we view every single racial issue through a lens of white supremacy already. And so because of that, because, you know, our nation was founded during a period where it was assumed that one race was superior to the other, because of that, and because that takes up the vast majority of our history during a time where it was, it was legal and it was socially acceptable to consider one race superior to the other. That's the context and the paradigm from which we automatically uh, approach these race issues. So when the American public hears Black Lives Matter, for example, they lash out because there is that sort of deep-rooted white supremacy inside all of us as North Americans that we all want to deny, that we all want to pretend doesn't exist. And the more we can understand that we all have that paradigm and have that context that affects our viewpoints uh, of race, then we can better approach a way to, to find a solution to these issues. And we get away from that performative version of activism and get into an activism that mm -hmm. actually has something deep rooted. Something that I know you have a legacy in as well, Carter. And speaking that truth to power is something that, that emanates from your person. Can you give the listeners a little bit of background as that why it's important for you to say what you're saying and what, what your, your history in the context of speaking that truth to power and investigating these situations is? Mm -hmm. Well, uh, 
legacy-wise, my grandfather, uh, Abner Winston Berry, he was a black leader the, in the Communist Party during, you know, the 40s and 50s. And he led a bunch of like uh, discussion groups, multiracial discussion groups within the Communist Party. And, you know, he's, he's been in sit-ins with, with Dr. King, and he was a prominent black journalist uh, for The Daily Worker in Harlem, New York. And during a time period, that, and that was during a time period when uh, it was hard for black voices to really be taken seriously. And I think that his work within the Communist Party helped to support the foundation that the, the civil rights movement was able to continue off of. And so because of the work that he was able to do and because of how proud I am to have, you know, that lineage, I, I think it's really important that I address these issues, address my own privilege and do my best to have these same conversations that that are just as relevant today as they were in the 50s. And, you know, he was bringing white allies to the table and, and trying to get them to understand the right way to do it back then. And even though things change, things don't really change. And we're fighting the same battles today. And we might sound like a, a broken record out here, but we gotta keep we gotta keep having these conversations and fighting this fight. Assuredly, we are on that front line, my friend, and we have to have these conversations to live forward in that legacy. And hopefully this time around, we do make that change. Carter, I, I mean, this is definitely a heavy conversation for sure. But if you had the, the power to, to change something in our, our social justice situation that, we are, that we're in right now, what would you change first? What I think made a huge impact in the middle of the 20th century was the fact that after slavery was abolished, how difficult it was and, and systematically difficult it was for black families to acquire capital, acquire real estate, whether commercial or residential. So one big change that we could make, or if I had a magic wand, what I would institute would be, I would create a housing program where we create more black ownership of real estate. And, you know, whether that's, uh, you know, if I had a magic wand, I would create a whole bunch of, you know, money out of thin air, per <laughs> se, and, you know, provide grants to people who don't own property, you know, maybe have it, you know, the way that we sort of have housing lotteries now, maybe, you know, a certain portion of the population receives grants or everybody receives a certain number depending on their income or whatever but something should be put into place so that the inequality that was created by redlining during the mid-20th century is somewhat rectified i think that is the closest that we would ever get to something vaguely reminiscent of reparations because owning capital is the only way to win within a capitalist society. And the members of the civil rights movement like Angela Davis understood this. That's why she was a communist. That's why so many people were members of the Communist Party because they recognized that capitalism was not working for black people in the middle of the 20th century because the capitalist system was designed against them through redlining. And the only, like I said, the only way to win in capitalism is to have capital. And what we need to do is we need to put 
real estate into the hands of black families in order for that to take place. No doubt, man. I appreciate you closing that out, brother. You know, one of the things, Carter, that keep coming back up inside of here is the lessons that you've taken throughout the course of all of this information. And I want to know what's something that you learned about yourself as this year has transpired? Oh, man, that's a deep question. I think one thing that I've learned about myself is the necessity of balance when it comes to how you use your time. Because we're given so much free time now against our will, but we have all this free time now. And it's so, you know, there was a period of time at the beginning of the shutdown where I, you know, I was spending all day indoors and I was using all day, I was just on the computer playing games. I was just playing games and doing nothing else because I had all this time and I needed to fill it with something. And instead of thinking about how to fill that void with something, what I should have been thinking about was how can I really effectively use my time and allocate it to the things that are really important. And so what I've learned about myself in that regard is how to better prioritize what things are really important to me, what creative endeavors I need to be prioritizing with my time so that I I develop personally the way that I truly want to during this time period. Here we go, my man. I keep hearing that natural leadership coming back out, brother. We got to make sure that we get this platform to be as big as possible so we can start leading people Mm -hmm. outside of these gyms and doing a lot of other stuff too, my man. You know, Mm -hmm. we're going to keep them moving in more ways than one. You know, Carter, Mm -hmm. I want to understand what does success mean to you today? Give me a little bit of the emotion that's behind that and what comes up when you think of success as you just redefine some of the things that are important to you in life. Success to me would mean, even outside of the context of just today, success to me means waking up and looking forward to doing what you do. I don't want to feel, I don't want to wake up and feel like it's a drag getting up and doing what I want to do. I will feel successful when I 100% not just enjoy it, but I want to be looking forward to every day of my life. So if that means that I need a certain amount of money to have this and then do that, then that's fine. I identify exactly how much money that is to get just there and then hit that. But, you know... A lot of people define success by material possessions or a certain status or whatever. But once you get there, your your standards change and then you're going to end up, you know, wanting more anyway. So to me, success is is, you know, is wanting it is wanting the day and wanting to go to work and loving it. It's a lust for life inside there. I love that, my brother. I love that. Mm-hmm. Carter, before we wrap the show, we'd like to leave our listeners with at least a gem of, you know, something they can do moving forward. So keeping it in a in the spirit of running outside of the lines, what could you tell our listeners or what advice could you give them for moving forward off the strength? Never be afraid to blame yourself. Hmm. Unpack that. For your problems, for your situations. You know, we always 
tend to, when something bad happens to us, we want to find a reason for it, right? Something terrible happens. We want to find a reason. We want an answer right there. Oh, it was because of, it was because of that person. Oh, oh, I was late to work because of the train. There, it's the same thing. It's like they have this unknown that they need to fill with something. And for many of us, and I felt so free when I discovered this about myself in so many areas, it's my fault that this thing didn't happen the way I wanted it to. And, you know, it's my fault that I didn't communicate properly with that person. It's my fault that I didn't listen enough. And when we can recognize and identify or even blame ourselves as the default for when things go wrong, what that does is, is it, it empowers us to make that change the next time because it's in our control now. I know that it was my fault that this didn't happen because I didn't do X, Y, and Z. And I know for next time that because I didn't do that before, I'll do it now. And having that self-blame, it just feels good. It feels good taking responsibility. I, it feels good apologizing to someone and genuinely meaning it, not worrying if they find out that you lied to them or not, you know? So that's what I would say. Blame yourself. It's your fault. <laughs> I like that, man. I hear you my know? man speaking that accountability doctrine over there. And through that accountability what you get is this thing called presence of mind and agency. And inside of that presence of mind and agency, you have the ability to change that factor called perception. And when you can exactly. change perception, you can unlock a lot of things that might be holding you back. Does that sound fair? Yeah, very well said. I couldn't have said it better myself. Hey, my man, we do this twice a week. You know, we chef it up on this side. That's how we cook on yeah. this side. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Fellas, how y'all feeling on that? Nah, I feel enlightened right now. I feel like I, feel like I, I got a new friend. Uh, one new friend? I feel like I got a new friend. Carter, you down with the squad? You, you trying to pull I feel up? Like I, got, I feel like I got three new, new friends. Yo, hey, 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 new oh, homie yeah. alert. Off the strength. Y'all want to go strength. in the garage and do some karate? Yeah, exactly. No, no, let's some do it. kettlebell. Yeah. We're going to get this kettlebell situation popping, yeah. dog. <laughs> trying to make this happen. Yo, Carter, I really do appreciate that. Everything that you shared with us today. From, yeah, thank you for having me on. Yeah, yeah. man. From the sentiments of, of your professionalism to the, the thinking that you have about being on the front line to the legacy and the history of your family, everything was beautiful inside there. And even speaking to that privilege where everybody in some relative sense can have some privilege. If you really do look at your atmosphere, do look at your environment and ties right back to that whole perception conversation that we were just having. Mm -hmm. Own your privilege. To borrow yeah. from that seat of God, you know, shout out to Charlemagne out there. There, there, there is a privilege mm -hmm. out there in every situation. Now, whether or not you mm -hmm. can realize that is going to be the objective question, right? But once yeah. you do realize that, you got to play your hand the best way. And that's why my man Carter is putting this down the line for us on this side. Carter, you're a dope dude. Hell yeah. And it's your fault. It's your fault, buddy. <laughs> yeah, it, it All is. this energy it right is. now. I, I don't know what it is yet, but it will be. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but yeah, yeah. Thanks so much for having me. It was uh, it was an honor to be on, and uh, I can't wait for the next one. Oh, we coming back to this front line, Coalition of the Willing, squad up. You're, we getting yeah. a lot of people inside here now, man. It's gonna be a problem when we hit these streets out here, Carter. For real, for real. Yeah. Thank absolutely. you again, once again. Right. It's been another fantastic episode of Off the Strength. I'm a trainer called Tony. You're a trainer, Corey. Kr Jones. Peace and much love to y'all. Until next time, we'll see you soon. Wash your hands. 
Thanks for tuning in, everyone. I hope you had as much fun as we did. For more with K.R. Jones, your trainer, Corey, and yours truly, a trainer called Tony, be sure to tune into the Author Train Podcast, dropping new episodes every Tuesday and Thursday across all digital service providers. And if you love what you heard, don't be afraid to tell a friend, like, and subscribe. For more information, be sure to follow us on our Instagram at offthestrength underscore. Thanks for listening in. Peace and much love. Till next time, we'll see you soon. As a major research institution, Arizona State University offers the most online bachelor's degree programs, along with world-class faculty and dedicated support. Discover why ASU is ranked number one in innovation for six consecutive years. Tap to learn more.